We're going to get into this part uh, of scripture in in Philippians chapter 4, where Paul's going to talk to us about the word contentment. And um, man, this is is a passage that had to speak to me before I could give it to you. And I want to just let you know I'm going to be pretty bold in calling you to be mature about contentment this morning. It's only because I think scriptures are really clear on this, and it's a bold statement to us. And so many of us are discontent that we need uh, we need a better plan. We need a more compelling vision for contentment than we've fenced in in our own lives. And uh, I'm speaking to myself as I'm preaching to you this morning. But let's read it. It's Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 through 13. It says this. Paul writes, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now, this is a huge passage for us living in a very blessed country materially who um, kind of lives with we all kind of live with new normals i don't know if you've ever heard of that that term but a new normal is when you upgrade and you go to something some of you have upgraded and you've got it in a, a flat panel television and and it's high definition if you've watched now for a year high definition television and you know what it's like when you go back to regular res- resolution, right? You go, oh, this experience, this is not good. Some of you have even bought 3D glasses to watch television so you can, have, you can upgrade. But when you upgrade, you look back at what you used to have and you're discontent with that. I remember in 1987, sorry if you weren't even born in 1987, but when in 1987 I bought my first computer, it was $3,000. And it was an 8386. And it had 16 megahertz. That's how quick it was. Man, that thing was flaming. And I remember it had a 20 megabyte hard drive. And I thought, what am I going to ever do to fill up 20 megabytes? Right now our computers cough and they spew out 20 megabytes. Then it was, it was everything. And, uh, for three grand, and then I got one of those dot matrix tractor feed printers. You know what I'm talking about? That's what it did. And when it would jam, I would question my Christianity. You know, I would, what in the world? That was my new normal. And at that time, it was awesome. But, but that wouldn't stack up now, would it? No, we're, we're in terabytes. We're in gigahertz. That new normal makes us look at what we used to have, and it makes us discontent with that. Um, some of us have bought new cars and new cars smell of a new car priceless. I mean, they know that let's make this thing just smell new because, because then you'll buy it. My, my son got a new normal this year. It, it was a 1993 Buick LeSabre. We call it the LeSabre <laughs> and it had 252,000 miles on it. It has gone around the world 10 times and is not a satellite. And for him, since it was his new normal, it is awesome. It's wheels, baby. I'm 16. This is my new normal. No more. Dad, can you take me there? It's, hey, I'm going to go out. And, you know, that's, that's his new normal. If he was, you know, I said, okay, 
Let's scrap the, the Buick LeSabre. Take your bike now. There would be a total angle of discontentment. And yet I remember when we got him the bike. And that was his new normal. And he could ride on his own without me running alongside of him. We get, we get adjusted to these new normals. And our, our culture actually markets you new normals. So that you become discontent with what you have. And it creates a need in you to have more. And therefore discontentment is very much a part of the fabric of American culture. We have to be discontent with something, so we want something else. And the Apostle Paul is really going to come to us, and he's going to really hit us right between the eyes and say, now, are you willing to be content in any and every circumstance? Because he was, he was able to do that. Uh, is your new normal contentment in Christ? Or is it just going to get into this cycle of wanting something new all the time? You know, it's... New normals are not bad. It's not like they're sin. And it's certainly good to have new things and to have fresh things and to, I mean, to to pursue after things. But they cannot be in your definition of contentment. The scripture is going to call us to live outside of that. We were created with this need and this need to be content. And and what what the scriptures call us to in, in Genesis 1 and 2 is this need for contentment can only be found in a relationship with God through Christ. Adam and Eve were, were created into this environment where, where God was enough. And when they looked at how what he created, he loved, Adam loved Eve and Eve loved Adam. They totally accepted and were content with each other without having, you know, her lose a few pounds and him make a little more money. Wasn't, that wasn't the requirement. Total acceptance, contentment in each other and, and with God. But something happens in Genesis 3. They want to find contentment apart from God. So they go and eat something that they think was going to fulfill them. And as a result, we have the fall and we're discontent. And we've been doing that. We've been pursuing other things than God. And they've been leaving us empty. And the scriptures call us back to find our contentment alone in Christ. We've been pursuing short-sighted visions for contentment. We need something for our hearts, for our souls, for our lives that only God can give to us. Here's what this passage teaches us about contentment. And this is the big takeaway. Contentment is trusting Christ in any and every circumstance. Paul said he learned the secret of contentment. He's learned to be with plenty. He's learned to be content with times of need. Hungry and full. He was content in any and every circumstance. Now, Paul, as we know to this point, was no stranger to challenges, to trials and suffering. He was arrested and imprisoned when he wrote this very letter to the church in Philippi. The guy, when he started the the church in Philippi, was arrested, put in shackles that contorted his body so it would spasm and thrown into prison. And what did he do in prison? Remember Acts 16? He and Silas were worshiping. They were praising. They were rejoicing in the Lord. I mean, hello, this is contentment in any and every environment. Now, Paul also recognized the culture that he lived in, and he was in a Roman culture influenced greatly by the the Greeks. And the Greeks had a a philosophical mindset of stoicism. When, When you have no emotion, someone goes, why are you so stoic? And what it means is that you are unaffected by your highs or your low. You're just you know, straight line. That's how you handle it. On your best day, you just handle it. Yeah, it's going good. On your worst day, 
I guess it's going to be okay. And, and so it's that strong emotional picture that you're giving of yourself. The Romans were attracted to that. If you take a look at their statues, are these people who are wimpy men? No, they're decked. They're cut men, you know, carved out of granite and placed in all of the, the town centers for us to see because they wanted, they, they were fascinated with the first, with the winners, with those who are best, the finest, the intelligent, the upper tier. We would know nothing of this type of culture, but that's what they lived with. I was kidding you there. And Paul despised it because it made Jesus Christ a debtor. In that mindset of of the winners, if we do not give him glory, if we do not find our contentment in him, we will think he deserves us. Or we will think he has left us because we don't didn't get it our way. And Paul said, I am strong. I am always strong in the Lord. I want you to flip over to 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and 12. Because the church in Corinth bought into that Greek culture. They brought into, you, you, you can have Jesus and you can pursue your passions of this world. You can have Jesus. It's always a theology with Jesus and. And in, and in case we think it didn't apply to us, I mean, we do it too when we think if you have Jesus, you have, yeah, everything's going to be great. You know, the sunshine's going to just hit specially on your window each day. And, and you're going to be that chosen special person in life if you have Jesus. And, and Corinth bought into that. And in Corinthians chapter 11, Paul is going to kind of be sarcastic with, with the church in Corinth. He said, you want to boast about your intelligence. You want to boast about whether or not I'm a, a good orator or a good, or, or even if I look strong and intelligent, if I look balanced. He was kind of a ragamuffin. And they had an issue listening to him because he wasn't, well, you know, he wasn't, he wasn't in the upper tier of society. And he writes this in, it's really drawn out and he just kind of hits it over and over. Don't boast about your own strength. Don't boast about your own intelligence. Don't boast about your own life apart from Christ. If I can boast in anything, it's going to be about God. And he kind of goes through his resume of everything he's been involved in and everything he's been persecuted in. It really shoots this right in the the bullseye of our lives of of really what are we going to be about Look with me in, in 2 Corinthians 11, verse 21, midway through verse 21, he says, but whatever else anyone dares to boast of, I'm speaking as a fool, I also dare to boast of that. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. He says, I'm a, I'm, I'm talking like a madman, but with far greater labors, far more imprisonment, imprisonments, with countless beatings, often near death, Five times I received in the hands of the Jews 40 lashes less one, which they did to heretics. He said, three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from from the Gentiles, I I mean from uh, false brothers. In toil and hardship through many a sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there's the daily pressure of me, of my anxiety for all the churches. Who's weak and I'm not weak? Who's able to, who's made to fall and I'm not indignant? He's basically saying in all areas of his life, 
from his career, from advancing the gospel all around this world, from, from being shipwrecked, from being beaten, from being flogged, and then his own personal emotional angle of life, of those people he loved who were walking away from Christ, when they fell, he felt it. He's a true pastor who, who grieved when someone walked away from Christ. He goes, I, on top of all those other things, this is what I've got. But he's learned to be content in that. He says, if I must boast, verse 30 says of chapter 11, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. And then he continues to go on and he even goes personal in his life. And he says, I've had a messenger of Satan who's been a thorn in my flesh. Some thought it was a, an emotional oppression in his life, like, a, like th- that he was just depressed and he, he dealt with that. Others think it was a physical ailment. And he pleaded three times with the Lord, remove this. In chapter 12, he talks about this. Remove this. But, but, but God says to him in verse 9 of chapter 12, he says, God said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am uh, then I am strong. Do you see the the picture he is giving us of contentment? He's saying in any and every circumstance, I can be content. He said it in his times of weakness, he has noticed the power of God flowing through him more than when he was strong. Because God's power is made perfect in weakness. Whatever it was that was plaguing his life, whether it was physical or whether it was emotional, um, he was actually more content with that through Christ than he could have if it were removed from it, from him. How could he do this? In this passage, I realized as I look at Paul, as Paul's writings, I saw three things in his life that, that he knew, that he believed, that helped him become content. Number one, he believed in the presence of Christ. He believed there was never a time when he was alone. He trusted and he believed that God was with him always. Some of us believe that God is with us on our good days, but when we have a bad day, we go, God, where are you? Paul said, no, he's with me every place. In victory and defeat, in, in times of great health and in times of great persecution, he was with him. He believed that God was with him wherever he went. He understood the presence of Christ. When you have Jesus, you have everything. When you don't have him, you have nothing in contentment. He also believed in the power of Christ. He said it was this power that would rest on him, in him and through him. He had a theology of being a pipe, not a pump. He realized that his life was just a conduit for God's power to move through. He wasn't to manufacture all this power. It was something that he was just available for God to pump through his life in any and every circumstance. Shipwreck, applause, call to God in different environments. He knew in every and any circumstance, it was the power of God. He realized that when he was weak, he was strong because the strength was always shown in the Lord. Also, the perspective of Christ. He realized that every moment was an opportunity to walk closer, to live deeper, and to grow in his love for Christ, no matter what. 
He realized that he was a citizen of heaven as he waited patiently for a savior who would transform him to be just like Christ. He realized that. And these three beliefs that he had allowed him to be content in any and every circumstance. He realized and he lived in suspense in the adventure of God confronting darkness with light, evil with good. Being a part of a larger story than he could craft for himself in his own little personal fairy tale. But he realized that God had a bigger story for him to play a role in. Therefore, wherever God took him, was right where he needed to be. Man, this is what we need. We, we need a vision like this for us. And, and the reality is, is you're not going to find it apart from the word. That's why we so desperately need to build our lives around the word. Let's flip back to Philippians chapter 4. And I kind of want to craft, how, how do we become content like that? How do we become like, obviously we have to believe those things, but how do we do this? What's our first steps on this? Well, contentment is, is a learned trait. Paul said, I have learned, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. It has to be learned by experience. We need experience in contentment. Um, the value of this is that there, it can't just be truth of contentment. It also has to be the daily life of us being content in one environment after the next. Do you have people in your life who just show a pattern of contentment through their experience? I really miss the presence of, of one of my friends who passed away this past year, a fellow elder, uh, Chuck Preston. He, I really miss Chuck because he just exuded contentment no matter where he was at. He served 42 years in the jungle swamps of Dutch New Guinea, and uh, he would advance the gospel there. And, and I was just amazed that he endured so much. That was his new normal. The multi-month trip over to, to Dutch New Guinea. Now we could go there in two days. And, but it took him months to travel with his family over there to advance the gospel. And whenever Chuck would speak, you could ask Chuck, Chuck, tell us how to repair a motor. And you know what you would get? You would get the gospel. He just couldn't help. But giving the gospel, he was content in Christ and he wanted everyone to hear the gospel. He was content to go into the prison system here in Topeka and lead several young men to Christ. And at his uh, memorial service, we all said, we need Chuck's legacy to continue. And uh, Mitch Miller, who, who kind of worked alongside Chuck, kind of led, led the charge. And 12 of you now, every week, are going to the prison systems here in Topeka. We've multiplied Chuck's influence just in the past six months. And your availability to that, you're, you're showing us experience in these environments. And that's why we need the body of Christ around us to show us what's it like to walk through this and be content. So are you living a life that people could look at and say, that person's content? Are you living a life, no nudge zone on this one, where your wife would say, he's content. In his 40s, he's content. There aren't many men in their 40s who are liking where they're at. Are we people, as followers of Christ, who are showing an experience of contentment? Or are we showing discontentment? 
You'll never be good enough. We don't accept you the way you are and you're just getting our way. You're frustrating to us. But we've got to be people who are content. We need to show that pattern of experience in doing that. Contentment is also learned not only through experience, but also through extremes. Look at the extremes that Paul writes about here. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound or be brought high and lifted up. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Let me just chart these out. It helps me put them in my mind a little bit better and helps me explain them. Do you see what he's doing? He's saying low and high, hungry and plenty, need and abounding. In the American dream, we only look to one side. We, we like the high, the plenty and abounding. And we say within this grid, I will be content. When those things happen to me, then Lord, I will thank you and I will praise you and I will, I will be content. Do you see the smallness of the gospel when we live like that? It's only for Americans, really. And it's only for the upper tier of Americans. Paul says, no, I have learned the secret of being content in all things. That's the whole picture. When I'm low, when I'm high, when I'm hungry, when I need, when I have plenty, when I'm in need and when I have more than enough in all things, I can be content. There's never a place or a time in my life when I cannot be content in all things. That's the picture that we get in all things. If we're not careful, we'll just fence it in to those, that one area of the chart. And the scriptures today unleash it. And let contentment move to every place in every situation in our lives. Steve uh, Sark, who... Um, just has done a lot of study on, on Buddhism, has, um, and more traditional, not, not more, um, Western Buddhism, but more traditional Buddhism. And, uh, he was mentioning today about enlightenment, not, not today, it was this week. I've just mentioned this three times up to this point, but he's talking to me about, um, how does someone get enlightenment in Buddhism? And he was sharing as he's studied it and as he's read the literature, he said, consider it this way. There's a, there's certain writing in, in Buddhism, specifically in Tibet, Tibet, that says, consider yourself a sea turtle out in the ocean and you're, you're swimming. And once every hundred years, you have the opportunity to jump out of the ocean. And at that moment, when you jump out of the ocean, there is a golden hoop. And you would be able to, once every hundred years, to jump through that golden hoop and land back in it. That is the odds you have at reaching contentment. We've kind of Americanized it and, and kind of had those enlightenment moments. But in, in traditional Buddhism, there's a picture. You can only have it only at the perfect, almost nexus of the universe moments. And biblical Christianity says, no, no, no. It's in all things, in all places. You can be content. Why? It has to do with this third thing. Because Christ is enough. Christ is enough. Christianity is not the absence of desires. It's the presence of the desires for Christ. For Christ. Christ has to be enough for contentment to happen. This is really the rallying cry of the book of Philippians. Christ plus nothing is enough for us. 
When you have Christ, you have everything. When you don't have him, you have nothing. And, and he says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Folks, this is not a locker room cry, okay? And I've been in those locker rooms environments where the guy gets up and he teaches. He goes, remember, before you get out there and you face them, you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. And yeah, you go out of there and you realize, hey, on the other team, there are other Christians. They just had that same devotional. We're coming out here. And one of us is not going to be able to do this thing because one person wins. This is not what it's talking about, even though... On a weak moment, I yelled this verse out to my son as he was coming on the final push on a cross-country meet. You can do all things through Christ. Okay. Uh, attach this to the context. We've got to catch this one. He's saying, I can, with Christ, with Christ, we can face all these extremes. All these extremes. I can go all places in any and every circumstance I can face with Christ. And I can go in all of those with contentment because he's the one who gives me strength. He's enough for me in every, in all things. Christ is enough. So, as we bring this to a close, let me ask you some questions. Number one, what is the standard of normal that I'm using to compare my life? Several weeks ago, I, I, mentioned, I mentioned how we, we cannot afford to compare our lives with anyone but Christ. Remember when we talked about that? Hello? Remember? Okay. Anytime we compare our lives with someone else, we're going to be discontent. We have to compare our lives to Christ because what does that create in us? A greater need for him. Greater need for him. And, and whatever angle of normal that we're using... We've got to really check that. What's the new normal in my life? And how is it making me discontent? Because with, with a constant attitude of discontentment, it's going to communicate to our spouses that, that they're not good enough for us. And, and we give them that rejection when they fail. It, it's going to communicate to the people we work with that they're not good enough and and that we could do it better and all that kind of stuff. And it's not contentment. And it, it reaps ruin, not only in your relationship with Christ, but in all those other relationships in your life. And it breeds an anger and a frustration, a criticism, a rejection. What's your normal? Secondly, what is it that you think you can do a better job of than Christ? Whatever I think I can do better than Jesus, I will be discontent with. You may not realize this. And we would never say it. We never say, hey, I'm Joe, and I really think I could do a better job than Jesus of this. But we live it. We live it. So you're single. And, um, and you're looking around and you go, I really want to be married. I really do. But... Um, and, and I talk to singles all the time, and I'm so honored to have the single perspective in my life through friends that I have. But this is a very common theme when you're single. And I, I talk to someone there in this really great relationship that they think is really awesome, and I go, hey, that's really, that's good. You're really happy, and it's fantastic. Does he love Jesus? Pause. Ah! And you just gave me your answer. When you pause... And you have to reach back to his, 
his grade school years when he used to go to church. It's just, you're thinking you could do a better job than Jesus on this one. No, does he or does he not love Jesus? It ought to be a yes, yes. Not even does he go to church. Does he love Jesus? Because anyone will go to church with you. And you know what I get back is, oh, he's just so nice. A serial killer is nice. (laughs) Does he or does he not? If you think you can do a better job than Jesus, you will be discontent. That's why I always call people, love Jesus with your heart. Passionately pursue him. And, and, and if, especially if you're a single. And I remember this advice was given to me when I was 26 and single and in seminary. And I just had to, I had to pursue Christ. And I prayed. I said, Jesus, give me a great heart for you. Help me to love you the way I want to love someone right now. And I trust you. I just do. I trust you in this circumstance. And you know what I found out as I chased and I pursued after him, I was running hard after him. I just looked over one day and there was Cheryl Smith. And Cheryl Smith gave up her name for Hishma, you know? <laughs> and just was a, an incredible thing that God did. Hey, if you're in middle school or high school or college or you've graduated or you're single again, you cannot do a better job than Jesus and bring a spouse into your life. What you need is a man or a woman who loves Jesus more than he or she loves you. Because when they love Jesus, they will love you like Jesus loves you. Don't, don't think you can do a better job. We make, and you, some of you may be ticked at me right now. In the Lord, I'm okay with that. I can take it. Because I love you. And I love Jesus. And I want you to love him. My greatest prayer for you as a church is that you'd love Jesus. And I want the people you commit to for the rest of your lives to do that too, to love him. Whatever it can be. I've seen people play this with finances. I think I can do a better job than God with my finances. So we don't give generously. And we wait till the end of the month when we have just leftovers. And whatever's left over, then I'll tithe from that. Really? You think you could do a better job than God in providing for you? The biblical pattern has always been you give him your first and your best and you worship him with giving. I'm not trying to heap shame and guilt on you. I'm just saying when we take control of our finances and we spend, how's that working out for us? Is it any reason why, to to figure this one out, why Americans live on 102, 104, 108% of their monthly income? They overspend because I'm doing a better job than God. And we don't give him our first and our best. And we insult him by just tipping. He needs to be first and best. Whether it's our time or our talents. I mean, personally in my life, I think there's sometimes I can raise my kids better than Jesus can. And so I take control and I manipulate or I try to take control in those areas. I just got to step back. Am I trusting you guys with Jesus? Am I not expecting you to be 46 years old in your wisdom, but trusting you at 16? Even though you don't see it, do I trust Jesus in your life? I've got to be willing to do that. Because until I do that, until I think that he can do a better job, I'm not going to be content. And then the final one, because I don't know what the Spirit is doing right now as you read the Word and, and you consider about it in your own life. But really, if you believe this passage, how would it change your life? 
if you believe this passage, that this is truth, then it has to go full circle. It can't just be an ideological message. It has to be a pattern, a practice in your life. Are you practicing contentment? Are we doing that? How would it affect your life? I just did some thinking and reflecting. Is If I really believed this passage and said, this is not just truth, and I love truth, it also has to be practice. Then I'll make a commitment to be content. To trust Christ in any and every situation. Even though I don't know what that's going to be like. And I just look at you right now. In, in one hour, you're going to be back reinvested into this world. And some of you are going to lose your job this week. Will you be content in every and every? Some of you are going to get a raise this week. Some of you are going to have a banner month. And some of you are going to have the worst month. Some of you are going to lose some people. We're a small city. And how many people are connected here? This is going to happen. And we cannot just say that we'll be content in these little areas. We've got to invite Jesus into every one of those areas and say, I will trust you no matter what. And it's scary, yes, but that's why we must trust. That's why we must trust. What is that going to look like in your life? I want to be content. I really do. I don't want to follow the pattern of this world for just those nexus of the universe moments when I can be content. I want to be content in all things. Christ has to be enough, doesn't he? So, Let's just take some time now as we close and just um, go before the Lord. And, and I want you to, you to do this personally. You know what would be different in your life. You know what would, would need to change. You need to even to call out some areas in your life that you have been discontent with, that you're thinking you're, you can do a better job than Jesus. And you just need to confess that and repent from it and, and trust Jesus with that. Even though you can't figure it out. I don't know how that's going to happen. You just trust him. I'm going to trust you. You're going to be enough for me in this environment. Whether it's a future spouse, whether it's your finances, whether it's your job, whether it's your marriage, your family, whatever it is, relationships with friends, start. Let's begin now. Would you just bow with me? And I'll give you just a few moments of silence to talk to the Lord. If you need to confess things, repent of things, if you need to trust him specifically, just name it specifically with him. Talk to him right now. Heavenly Father, I thank you for these moments of honesty um, where we can move away from the regular routine of our weeks and the frustrations and distractions and we can talk with you. And thank you for being a God who listens, who is here, who forgives when we confess, who restores when we repent. We thank you. In your grace, we just praise you for that. Heavenly Father, we live in a, in a country that has more than most other countries in this world and yet are more and more increasingly discontent. We don't want to be like that. We want to live in this culture, but we do not want to live of this culture. We want to walk with you. We want to be followers of you. We will be content. We will be grateful. 
we will be thankful. We will rejoice. We will encourage. We will support. We will build up, not tear down. We will affirm, not question. We will be people who find our contentment in you because you are enough. You are enough. Because you're enough, it affects everything else. Help us to be people who are content in you. For it's in the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.